Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 12 of Middle Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Goddard. Tim Sheaf, a YouTube star and former <laughs> vegan athlete, declared that he ejaculated for the first time in months after eating raw eggs and salmon. <laughs> There's more to that piece, but I, I wanted to start a little punchier this time. I wanted it to uh, be a little bit more direct. And I feel like, Derek, have you ever stopped eating eggs and salmon for a while and just stopped coming? Like just all together. No, uh, like every word in that sentence confounds me. Yeah, like it's the- starting with starting with the fact that he's uh, a, a a vegan YouTuber. So, um, this is actually from an article uh, in the Daily Beast called "The Weird World of Vegan YouTube Stars Is Imploding," and it's kind of about how uh, a lot of vegan YouTubers have been caught eating not vegan recently, and it's uh, there's a lot happening on that. And uh, I'll just read some more excerpts just really quick. So, last Sunday, a five-second video clip of vegan YouTuber Yovana Mendoza single-handedly brought down the luminous 28-year-old's entire career. In it, you can see the raw food advocate, who goes by the name Ravana, smiling at a restaurant in Bali as she prepares Doug into a meal. But in an instant, the health guru's face changes as she realizes her friend's camera is trained on her plate. She moves to cover it, but it's too late. Internet sleuths watching the 10-minute vlog later deduced that Mendoza was hiding a piece of fish. Mendoza rushed to upload a video claiming she had only been eating fish for two months as a remedy to the health complications she developed after six years as a vegan, but the damage was done. Former fans descended on her YouTube channel, Instagram, and Twitter, posting emojis of fish and taunting her as Fishvana. Ah, man. There's a lot to unpack on all of this, and I wish we actually followed through on our podcast of The Internet Sucks with Derek and Isabel. Because there's so many other things. Who the hell are you? Oh, yeah, I'm Isabel. Um, There's so many other, like, great excerpts from this. Like, the. Before we started recording, I missed your original call because I was listening to a diss track that, um, two. As in a rap? Yes. Uh, well, debatable, but basically. Oh, okay. Um,. That two vegan twins named Nina and Randa that uh, they made that they were dressed up in, like, cop outfits, and they're, like, the vegan police, and they're, like, insulting some person who... Oh, that thing that Scott Pilgrim made fun of. Yes, but this is, like, <laughs> for serious. Oh, man. Um, But the other good thing I really liked about it, so there's uh, this... One of these vegan stars is named Freely the Banana Girl. And she's named that because the original diet she promoted involved her eating up to 50 bananas a day. And <sighs> that's a lot of goddamn bananas. That's a lot of bananas. And the, she was, uh, I guess, dating some guy named Durian Ryder, who's also a YouTube vegan star. Let me guess. He made his bones eating 50 durians a day. I, I didn't say anything about that. And I, I <laughs> was too scared to look up these 
these vlogs. But uh, the best little aside in the article is that the couple once claimed that more thin people would have survived 9-11 if fat people weren't blocking the stairwells. Oh my god. Yeah. So that's the world of vegan YouTube if you want to know what that's like. Oh man, uncomfortably close to 9-11 conspiracy theorists. It would yes. Seem. I don't think I've ever eaten a meal so good that I've ejaculated after eating it. Okay. Like so you ha- you haven't had that experience. I thought it was pretty common. I have not. Like I I um, You don't just like go to like the Jack in the Box and just nut in your pants? <laughs> no, I've had I've made great food. I've eaten How great many food. times total just for any reason have you nutted at a Jack in the Box? I've never been inside a Jack in the Box. So You've never been inside a Jack in the Box. They That's They don't have them in Canada or at least not in Quebec. That's kind of terrifying. There's no Popeyes. They uh, have they have the the best awful tacos. Because there's like a slice of American cheese in it. Oh, oh, and already Taco Bell is like slurry, basically. Yeah, and it's it's even worse slash better. And they also, I would recommend Jack in the Box to all the people who still eat meat. More like Jack off in the box. Heyo, heyo. I think we can start the show now. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> um. So millbrow madness or lowbrow madness, I guess, because we've been talking about just. Come for the first five minutes of the show. <laughs> we were talking about veganism as well, and those I guess are related because you eat a lot of nuts when you're vegan. Yeah, come and veganism. And like, but like, but like, come wouldn't be vegan, would it? No, like, it wouldn't. I, oh man, this is the kind like, of like, like if if I was to like blow some person, like <laughs> I couldn't eat their cum, I'd have to be like, sorry, I'm vegan. I I gotta spit this out. Oh man, Th- this exchange brought to you by Bad Dragon. We're still working on that. Uh, <laughs> we're still working on that deal, folks. You ever see that they have like their lube is literally supposed to look like dragon? It's supposed cum? to look like cum, yeah, yeah. Because I after it's it's innovation. Because after I, I after we recorded the last episode, I went onto bad-dragon.com <laughs> and uh, perused the merchandise, so to speak. And yeah, cum lube. Yeah, uh, because like they have a lot of like their 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 dildongs. They can like <laughs> put like a tube in them, so that way you can like fill the tube with like dragon cum. So that way, when you're raring to go, you're all set. Oh, man. Man, we've gotten really blue in the last couple episodes, uh, haven't we? And whose fault is that, Isabel? You're the one who talked about, like, nutting when you're eating food. I was <laughs> quoting from an an article at an esteemed website, and you're, you made it dirtier. Oh, also, man. remember, like, I didn't – there the whole thing that started this was when I read some fan fiction, and you were mad that it wasn't vulgar enough, so I had to reach into the bucket of vulgarity and pull out – what I had for that, and we've just been going downhill since then. But then it, we crashed through the wall of the wall of vulgarity, so to speak, into just you know filth. <laughs> like, well, we got the explicit tags, so yeah, we're all set. Yeah, right? that was more of a preventive measure. But we've talked about cum in most of our episodes now. <laughs> hey, 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 Isabel's dad, how's it going? Hey, mom. <laughs> I don't know. You, you probably don't listen to the show, but you know what's up. Uh, so movies, then I guess. Uh yeah sure. Uh, we did we, did we watch any this week? What are, what are we doing? This feels really weird because these are usually group. We usually record these twice in a row. Like we record one and then the other, and we've split these two up. So I feel kind of out of it. Yeah, I feel I feel I I feel uh, possessed by a, a strange energy. Um, we should probably say what this podcast is, shouldn't we? Yes, Middle Brown Madness is the name of the show, and this is what we do here. Uh, back when we started this thing, uh, Isabel. Back when it used to be about movies. Back when it used to be about movies. Back when we used to finish these in under an hour. Uh, we have 
Isabel set out a bracket of 256 movies comprised of the Internet Movie Database's top 250 movies of all time, plus uh, three wildcards that we took that had similar scores but not enough votes to crack the 350, or the 250, rather. And uh, we picked them off. Pit them off? Is that a thing? Is that idiomatic English? We pit them head-to-head <laughs> against each other in a single elimination bracket until we crown a champion, which I estimate is going to be early in the next decade. Um, we're right, we're raring in the middle of the, uh, we're right in the middle of the first round, or I say the middle because uh, I don't want to depress myself too much when I look at how big this bracket is. Yeah, we're like getting towards the first quarter. We're getting towards the first quarter. So um, we each have vetoes since this is a two-person operation. If we come to a tie, we can use vetoes. We have four for the first round. We've each used one. We both have three left. And this time around, we have four fresh contestants entering the entering the Thunderdome, as it were. We've got All About Eve versus A Beautiful Mind and Inception versus 8.5. That was weird. Don't do that again, please. <laughs> Should I call it by its original Italian title, Otto e Mezzo? I'd prefer that than 8.5. That 8. sounds 5. makes it sound like it's like a like a cyberpunk movie. You know, in a way, I'm not. I'm not gonna die on make this that show. argument. I go for it, Derek. I'd I, love to see that from you no, right now. I didn't think. I didn't think of it beyond just those three words I just said. So maybe we could. Sh- we, maybe we should just get right into it. Yeah, for sure. Um, a beautiful mind. Tell. Oh, did that win any Academy Awards? It won it a couple won, of them, right? It won a few. Let's do the tail of the tape. So uh, we have the 115 seed, All About Eve, released in 1950. Directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, uh, based on The Wisdom of Eve by Mandy Orr, starring Betty Davis, Ann Baxter, George Sanders, and Celeste Holm. Uh, $1.4 million budget, $8.4 million box office take, so a pretty good hit, especially when you consider that those are $1950. And won uh, six Academy Awards, so a pretty... and nominated for a ton more. But winner of six, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Costume Design, Black and White, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Sound Recording. Going up against A Beautiful Mind, released in 2001, directed by Ron Howard, uh, based on A Beautiful Mind by Sylvia Nassar, starring Russell Crowe, Ed Harris, Jennifer Connelly, Paul Bendy, Adam Goldberg. This movie's got a real deep bench. And... Uh, also a winner of four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actress. So that's two different Best Picture winners going up against each other. Yes, I think this is the first time this has happened. So Derek, which one are you starting with? Are we starting with um, Eve or Mind? Let's start with All About Eve. Let's start with The Favorite. Okay. That is probably a good idea. (laughs) So All About Eve is, uh, I think, I don't know if we said this on the show or if it was off air, but this is basically Showgirls. <laughs> yes, it's it's just, have you seen Showgirls? Then you've probably seen most of uh, All About Eve. And I don't mean that negatively. No, no, this is like uh, the, uh, the, 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 the plot very broadly is the ingenue usurping the position of the star. And uh, there's an interesting bit of casting here because you would think just reading the cast list that, that, uh, that, one of these two people is the asshole, but Betty Davis is not the asshole in this movie. Betty Davis is actually the person who's put upon. She I mean she is kind of an asshole in certain parts. She's, like I, I don't think we should just say that Betty Davis is the hero necessarily in no. this film. There's no real hero, honestly. 
but she's not the uh, she's not the one making the moves. Let's say that. No, she's not the one making the moves. She's the one who is um, I being moved upon. Being moved upon, I guess. Um, as good as Betty Davis is in this movie, this is Anne Baxter's movie through and through. One hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. Um, Eve, the titular Eve. The titular Eve. Uh, fuck, what's her last name? Eve Harrington. Harrington. That's true. And movie kicks the off. Mother of Kit Harrington. Yes, the mother of Kit Harrington. Um, who was it who dropped that magazine cover in the Slack? Was it Juan? I think it was Chris. Friend of the show, Juan Barkeen, or friend of the show, Chris Mella. Uh, Kit- Have you ever seen any of the Game of Thrones things? They I- seem awful, but I like don't want to actually like learn things so i don't like want to do, like watch it here's i here's where i expose myself as a pop culture dunce i have seen a grand total of zero episodes of game of thrones that that phenomenon has completely passed me by i've read none of the books i've seen none of the none of the episodes of the television show nothing so a lot a lot of like re, a lot of recap culture is not for me so both of us are the john snows in the situation because we know nothing we know well, references we, we know enough to make People that reference i guess <laughs> Yeah, I've I've heard people say that. I've literally no idea what it's referring to besides the fact that I think Kit Harrington is Jon Snow. And spoilers, I don't think it's spoilers the fact that I know it and I don't watch a show. He dies and comes back to life. Uh, I, th- I mean, why are you asking me? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I feel like, like you should know pop culturally if that's happening. The only thing I've seen Kit Harrington in is the Paul Pompeii? W- Pompeii, the Paul W.S. Anderson vehicle, which is Deese. Not for not which I uh, in my head I always think that that's directed by um oh god what's his name Roland Emmerich nope hold on different guy Rennie Harlan Rennie Harlan why are we not talking about all about Eve um because I don't I'll be honest I don't have much to say about it it's good it's real good but like it's real good I have no strong opinions on it really I think it's actually I I, I liked it a lot uh, I think uh, the performances across the board were very good. The writing mm-hmm. was very uh, mordant in a way that I think, like that particular era of studio filmmaking, excelled at. Um, like uh, I think it's an Alfred Newman score that's really lush. It's like it's 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 for lack of a better term, it's very it's, it's very classical. It's very classical in its in its moves. It's a very elegant movie. It starts off at it start it starts off at the end. And uh, lays out – George Saunders is really fucking good in this movie as, like, the critic. Yes, he's one of the best people in the film, honestly. Um, and he has, he has like, a, like a, a weird menace to him that you don't really expect. Yeah, and that, that menace comes to fruition uh, deep, deep in the movie. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, because this is, like how, – how would you say? This is, like, a simple story well told. There isn't much in the way of, like, like um, – directorial flair or uh like bravado visuals this is like here's a story that's like real simple to lay out it's two hours long and there's like no fat on it it's just really solid work and i feel like if i if i had grown up at the time that this would have been a popular film it would have seemed more to me than it is now but i've seen some other films like this i've seen showgirls which i vastly prefer to all about eve sure it's not to say all about eve is a bad film it's just that it doesn't the language of old hollywood studio films don't really connect with me like the only one of those that like really works for me that i can think of off the top of my head is sullivan's travels um which is more just because of i can see 
it, it's like a proto Cohen film. Sure. Um, and in this, I just it's it's very well acted, very well put together, very well staged. But I just have no strong feelings one way or the other. I'll be honest. Um, you, are, what's your opinion just on old Hollywood films? Are you like a fan of them? Some are you some are good and some are bad. <laughs> Okay, can you give me a more divisive answer? Because we need to make make this make the big bucks. And the only way you do that is by saying wild shit that has no basis in reality. Oh, okay, you want me to say you wild shit? Tell sh- me that all of them are perfect or okay. something like that. How about this? There's no such thing. How, how about this for a hot take? There's no such thing as a good movie made before 1980. <laughs> that That is a hella hot take. Yeah. Are you going to stand by that one? Because I'd love to see if that holds out. I can't even commit to the bid. That's a complete lie. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I think a lot because, I mean, this has been like an area of study. Like, here's the thing. I went to grad school and classical Hollywood cinema was not part of like, it's like a huge part of like the syllabus, but it wasn't my area, like uh, my chosen area of of study, like mm-hmm. like David Bordwell and all that shit. And the classical Hollywood cinema, it's been studied to death. There's kind of a look to it. And there's theories behind that. And it, when you imagine a movie from the oldie times, you kind of have that image in your head of like the 180 degree rule is like very, very strictly enforced. And the sets kind of look like this and the lighting is kind of like this. And people have kind of like, you know, like, 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 uh, like transatlantic accents. They kind of speak in a certain way. And the ones that stick out are like, like the weird gnarled genre versions. The deviations, of that. yeah. Yeah, so like all of film noir, Hitchcock, um, like even shit like like your 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 weirder westerns, uh psychodramas, all the movies that were made for like really, really cheap, like Detour is getting a bit of a bump because uh the Criterion disc dropped not too long ago. And that's yeah, just like yeah. a gnarly piece of work. And no, I mean, but I'll just go back to my original answer. Some are good and some are bad. <laughs> I mean, it feels a little bit like I'm trying to find something new to say about, like, The Great Gatsby. Right. Like, I, everyone read it in high school. Everyone knows what it's about. Everyone's seen the whole thing. Like, I've had to do a million essays on it. I'm sure everyone else has had to do a million essays on it. Like, at a certain point, I can recognize a quality that doesn't resonate with me. Whereas, like, older films that do resonate or something like, this is much older, but, like, A Page of Madness. It's sure. a silent film that, like, really resonates because it's so strange and weird. Also, that was in Hollywood, though. I, true. Um, also, this as far as like the Hollywood ones, but, so some ones that like stick actually stick out to me are like I Married a Witch. I don't know if you've ever seen that. But I it's, ain't seen it, but I know of its existence. It's it's deeply goofy and kind of like fun and weird, and I, it's basically sticks out because of Veronica Lake. Veronica Lake sells that movie. She also sells Sullivan's Travels. Probably why those are like my two favorite of those because she's the star, or not the star, but one of the stars in both of them. Um, one film that I know we're both huge fans of is Hell's a Poppin'. Hell's a Poppin', yeah. That, that was like, I don't, I mean, I, oh God, what was, what's the production credit on that? <laughs> Who released that? Because Hell's a Poppin' was kind of like a phenomenon. That was Universal Pictures. It was Universal, so sure, okay, yeah. Because Hell's a Poppin' was kind of like a, a phenomenon. Certainly. Um, but then you also have stuff like, again, like you're talking about the weird genre films, like Island of Lost Souls is sure. super weird. The 39 Steps is obviously not just Hitchcock, but it also has that really strange ending that sure. <laughs> like I still think about like that's why why do you choose that but then like the things that I actually care about from older cinema is stuff like um so like Spencer Williams films like like race films or films from outside the US sure. or those 
those things that haven't been fully metastasized into mainstream filmmaking. Sure. I think I, I think this is kind of a, a, in a strain of movies, and I think we're going to talk about this a lot as we go on further up the bracket. But I'm sure and, is probably is Sunset Boulevard in here somewhere, probably. Yeah, well, that's, uh, but that that's like a dark kind that of that is like, kind of darker re- and weirder, like reflexive movie. Um, but I think something that we're going to count, something that is true about All About Eve, and it's true about another one of the movies we're going to be talking about today. But I think will come up again as we go up the bracket. Is this is the kind of movie that is easy to take for granted because there's been a lot of time between the release and and while well, right now. And a lot of what would make that film unique or uh, exemplary has kind of been absorbed into the greater culture and into like the yeah, very absolutely. boats of filmmaking. But that takes not- a really it, it's it, for a musical comparison. It's kind of like I hate the Beatles. Well, I don't hate them. I, I don't enjoy listening to the Beatles. I think it's really boring. I think it's like super lame, honestly. But at the same time, I see like all the like the DNA of that in so much of rock music. I do like like I love. Um, all like the Elephant Six stuff, sure. which it wouldn't exist without the Beatles. Or um, I like Beatles harmonies when they're not in the Beatles. So I can take a lot of those things for granted. I like this a lot more than the. Be- I like All About Eve a lot more than I like the Beatles. But it's the same kind of concept. Surprising no one, I quite like the Beatles. <laughs> a lot. Of, a lot of people do. They're they they sold some albums. Any messages to that effect can be forwarded at Space Jam Fan on Twitter. I've I've said this a million times. I don't think I'm going to get anything new yeah, telling I don't me know. that, oh, actually the Beatles are good and I should like them more. I don't want to be a negative Nancy about our podcast, but I don't know how far the reach of our show is beyond our circles that are already established. Well, if you want us to expand beyond that, if you want us to reach the bad dragons of the world, oh dear listener, you need to share this podcast. Uh, I mean, we usually do, do this for the end, but uh, you know what you don't need to share. <laughs> Any uh, stray copies of A Beautiful Mind you might have laying around. Oh, the, uh, you were doing a segue. I was like thinking you were doing a callback and you were going to say like, come. <laughs> I was like, you probably don't need to share that most of the time unless someone wants it. But. I have a modicum of professionalism that I'd like to conserve. Well, I'll drag you down into the gutter with me if I need to. Uh, but so A Beautiful be- Mind. Yes. Um, Not a beautiful movie, though. An ugly, a deeply... I said last episode that this is... I would see... There's one film this episode that I found like generally morally repugnant. Sure. This is it. We're talking about a beautiful mind, so and mo- I think this film is genuinely like bad. So like, this- not not just not just like filmmaking wise, which I think it is also not great that way. I think but it's I think just kind of on a dull. moral level. Like filmmaking wise, is kind of dull and a little hacky. It's a Ron Howard movie. It's a Ron Howard movie. Like Ron Howard is like a really interesting test case for like like autorism because. I don't know if he has a style. He's made good movies. He's made bad movies. He's the prestige version of Rennie Harlan to bring back him because Rennie Harlan doesn't have a style. Rennie Harlan's style is whatever's popular at the moment. And he just does that. I happen to like Rennie Harlan quite a bit. And I actually like a lot of Ron Howard's films. I, I loved in the heart of the sea. And that's also a film that just steals from like other, other movies. Like there's shots in it that are, Clearly taken from the documentary Leviathan, like so clearly taken from it. Or uh, Master sure, Commander, I guess. Uh, Master and Commander is another big uh, viewpoint for that. And then you have stuff like The Da Vinci Code, which I actually think is a pretty fun movie. I think it's very dumb, but I think it's pretty fun. Apollo Same 13, with that's a Demons. good movie. Uh, okay. I mean, I think it's a good movie. I haven't watched it in like 15 years, but I liked it then. <laughs> okay. 
Um, that's totally fine. I never saw Solo, but I hear it's fine. Yeah. Like, that, that, I think the fact that he took over Solo is kind of the perfect uh, metonymy for Ron Howard. It's like, he's a guy who comes in to fix your messes. Like, he doesn't mess he doesn't uh, mess with your properties with pesky things like personality and Yeah, he doesn't add his own flavor. He just, he does whatever you, he is He's just, a carpenter. Yes. Uh, not John Carpenter, just a carpenter. <laughs> he's but not Jesus either. He's just he's just <laughs> a generic carpenter. No savior, no horror movies. Just hanging he's not out a there. He's not a member of the Carpenters, the uh, pop group. He's just a carpenter. He's not a bee, not a carpenter bee. <laughs> any more we got? You got anything else in there? Um, no, I think that's everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, a beautiful mind is uh, a biopic about. Uh, Nobel Prize winning economist John Nash. Nash. Now, um, I don't like the term Oscar bait. I think it's a lazy way to describe a movie. I think it's a lazy way to describe a kind of movie in a middle brow mode. Now, also the whole reason we kind of uh, created this pod is like there's good middle brow movies, obviously. There are certainly, and uh, I think next week or the week after, we're actually going to talk about a couple of them. I think, we're I think ta- we've already talked about some of them. And we're going to talk about one just in a second. Okay. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I think like 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 Fincher is also relatively speaking a middle brow director, but mm-hmm. we both like him quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And th- this is just plays into like every stereotype of like what like a limp dick Oscar movie is. <laughs> like it's not visually exactly. imaginative. It's 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 actually quite hackneyed. It's um it it strives for emotional beats it doesn't earn. It uh, tackles a problem in giant quotation marks very, very clumsily and uh, folds it into the narrative in very questionable ways. Um, and I think if I, if I may, sure. Uh, the, that clumsily and that um, problematic, I would turn into like genuinely harmful and genuinely um, upsetting. I've personally found because for those who aren't aware, John Nash um, was an economist. He, it's kind of the guy who came up with game theory, or one of the people, and he's the main one credited with game theory. And he was also uh, he also has paranoid schizophrenia. And the way this film presents that is so surface level, but also insulting, because it presents his delusions and his schizophrenic episodes as if they're spy thrillers, as if they're twists that the plot can take, as if they're these machinations that can be overcome through the love of a good woman. And it's taking all the worst stereotypes about mental health and about mental illness and shoving them all into one movie. And not just the love not, of a good woman, just raw will. Yes, I'm, just raw willpower I'm will smart, get you through it. So I can beat schizophrenia. <laughs> Which, I mean, to be slightly fair to the film and like probably give it way too much credit, um, psychiatry and psychological like medicine at the time that um, John Nash was having these serious was problems. Was still in the fucking Stone Age. Was still in the Stone Ages and was often not great. But the fact that it's one of those movies that shows taking your pills as being a burden. Right. Uh, which is such like a shitty thing to see um, as someone, as a person who does suffer from mental health issues. Uh, I've never obviously suffered. Uh, I shouldn't say obviously. I haven't suffered from schizophrenia, but I have had serious depression. I've had serious anxiety. And the pills help. <laughs> Going to therapy helps. I didn't get over these things. I didn't work through them. And I haven't grown just by willing myself to get better. That's not how anything works. And I think that the way this film, uh, the blandness of 
Ron Howard's direction really makes what should be something that is genuinely harrowing, something that is genuinely a serious part of this person's life and something that should be grappled with very delicately into just pablum where there's another film. Have you ever seen clean shaven? Uh, clean shaven has been on my list for ages, but I have not seen it. Hobby. Uh, it's an excellent film. It's also about a character who has uh, paranoid schizophrenia, but it's a film that uses its style to attempt to emulate what that might feel like to be a person with um, schizophrenia and the overwhelming nature of trying to exist in a world that doesn't, adapt to you a world that is not kind to you um it's a heartbreaking film it's a very good film i'd recommend everyone see it but i think that having that especially as a like a another example of how you can treat the subject in a way that isn't disrespectful in a way that is genuinely open-hearted and wants you to understand but is not does it does not pussyfoot around that it can be very difficult to live with schizophrenia um and also the fact that how familiar are you with game theory derek um very little. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm not going to get super into it because I'm also – I'm not a mathematician. I'm just like somewhat familiar with it. But um, it the game theory is this economic and mathematical theory that attempts to explain human behavior through games, quote unquote, which is any any activity in which one person profits to gain more or less than another person, to put it okay. in a very broad sense. And the way they de- demonstrate it in this film – is through like some really weird sequence at a bar where they're like, hey, if we all want the blonde girl, but if none of us go for the blonde girl, we'll all get other girls and we'll all get laid. And it's like this fun, like frat kind of thing. Yes. When actual game theory uh, and its applications are very serious and very dark and have led to some very big problems. And um, Adam Curtis has a... Uh, film called i believe it's the trap is this one that i'm thinking of where he actually discusses game theory's influence on economics and politics and the way that it has kind of deified individualism and deified competition to the detriment of um cooperation and mutual aid and what i find really distressing about this film's use of game theory is that if it had just ignored it or just been like hey he did something really good the end but the fact they try to dramatize it but they don't dramatize it in a way that contextualizes it because John Nash himself has said, Hey, I thought this was the way people worked because I was seriously paranoid and seriously had schizophrenia that was like seriously impacting my ability to realize how people actually mutually help each other. I was so alone and so individualized that I couldn't conceive of the way most societies actually work. So even if you look at him now, he's, he's basically says like, well, under very specific circumstances, what I said is correct, and the mathematics obviously work out, but it is wrong to view that as a broader thing. And I'm not saying Ron Howard needs to make a socio-political film about the influence of game theory on economics, but the fact that there's this deeply paranoid aspect to this entire theory that isn't brought up at all and is made to seem almost like a cooperative theory is really gross and really weird. And... For those couple reasons that I just spoke about at length, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> okay. I found this film genuinely, like, morally, like, repulsive. This movie, not, I mean, obviously this is not a, 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 as um, as thorny a thing as what you had just said, but this is a complete waste of a deep bench. Yes. Uh, you go down the line. People Ed really Harris, try. They really try. Jen Connolly, Academy Award winner for this. Paul Bettany. During his big year, this was also the year of A Knight's Tale, Adam Goldberg, Judd Hirsch, Josh Lucas, Anthony Rapp, Chris Plummer, 
And this movie looks like dog shit, but it was it was shot by Roger Deakins. God, I didn't even I didn't even know Deakins shot this. That is atrocious. That should be a crime to make a Deakins <sighs> film look this bland. I, I want to put my own biases under the lens for a second. We've probably gone way over on this already. So I, I think so. If, yeah, but I'd like to just take like one minute to like put my own biases uh, and perhaps yours. Let's see under the lens. As I was watching this, I was like, "This is clearly an insensitive and." Uh, as you said, morally repugnant way of of of, of using uh, schizophrenia or a mental health issue in the context of a, a, a plot in a film, and I kept and I kept thinking of our friend M Night Shyamalan and uh, a movie that we've all liked in the uh, DTHL group, uh, a little movie called Split. Mm-hmm. Now I was trying to negotiate in my head: why do I find one a lot more? Why why do I find Split less gross? I mean, I think a big part of it is it's working in the love, love metaphor and not as much literal because this is literally like a biopic of some guy's life. True. Although it's, it's mostly irrelevant, but basically nothing in this film happened exactly like it did in real life, but whatever. Yeah. Um, But I think it's also the fact that Shyamalan clearly has an a totally separate level of empathy and understanding to the point where, um, yes, it uses dissociative identity disorder in a way that is kind of gross. Like, I'll be straight up. It's a little gross. But it's also in a way that is clearly empathetic towards that and clearly cares about that as a way of viewing the world and as a way of perceiving things and not merely as a plot point. Sure. Uh, And I think that that obviously extends to the rest of the characters in that film. I think that Shyamalan is very good at using these metaphorical languages to express and to characterize people in ways that are a lot more deep than this movie ever gets to with his main character. Because like John Nash, John Nash's character in this is he's he's not very good at people, and he's crazy. And I that, I realize that sounds insulting, but that's how the movie points it. Yeah, he like, calls himself it. that. Yeah, and that's like his only two character traits. I don't know anything about John Nash from. I know more about the interviews with John Nash I saw in an Adam Curtis documentary than I do about a biopic of him, which is that something there is fucked up. That's pretty damning, and. Um... With that, I think we can handily hand uh, All About Eve the victory in this particular pairing. Yes, it is. Uh, I think in any other pairing, it would have had a little bit harder time. But when it's going up against a film I found morally repugnant, yeah, it's uh, a pretty easy to slide past there. All right. So congratulations to All About Eve. You are moving on. This next matchup is real interesting. There's a lot of levels of reality going on. It's real interesting. So tail of the tape real quick. Uh, let me get my notes because I totally have notes. The 14 seed. That's one four. Jesus. The 14th best movie of all time, Inception, uh, directed by Christopher Nolan, uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Ken Watanabe, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Marion Cotillard, Ellen Page, Tom Hart. This is this is their movie with a real deep fucking bench. Uh, and worldwide box office smash. Eight hundred twenty-eight million take on a hundred sixty million dollar budget, and did this win any technical Oscars? Must have. It won four Academy Awards for oh. best cinematography, best sound editing, best sound mixing, and best visual effects. Right, Raleigh Pfizer got his Oscar for this. All right, well that's pretty good. Uh, versus eight and a half, uh, released in nineteen sixty-three. I should also say that Inception was released in two thousand and ten. That's yes. just that's something I should have said. Uh, eight and a half. The 243 seed in this tournament, uh, released in 1963, uh, directed by Federico Fellini, starring Mar- uh, Marcello Mast- uh, 
I can go for it. Do you this. can do it. I believe I can you. definitely do this. Marcelo Mastroianni, Claudia Cardinale, Anuke May, Sandra Milo, and Barbara Steele. And I don't really have budget numbers on this, uh, but uh, $3.5 million take on rentals, according to Wikipedia. I mean, it, I mean, regardless of how much money it made, it had a pretty long tail as like a important cultural document of like of like 60s Italian film. And that's not nothing. And it won a uh, best foreign language film. It did Oscars. win. It did do that. So uh, and apparently, even the Vatican liked it. Yeah, it's on that. It's on the list of the Vatican's best movies of all time. I'm really curious what else is on that list. It's really interesting that these two movies go up against each other because, in a way, they are both about the fucking magic of cinema, baby. Um, coming at it from two very different directions, but uh, ultimately, these are both uh, dazzling works of film. Who that? These are both dazzling works of film that take great pains to point out that they are dazzling works of film. Yes. Which can kind of get grating a little bit when it's... I'm going to show my hand a little bit. It gets a little grating when it's navel gazily, but when it's like just technical wizardry, it's like, just just fuck me up. Just well, do it. it. It throws back to Sherlock Jr., I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, it, do, it does kind of. This is... Yeah, Inception is kind of a Buster Keaton movie... On uh, it's what did I call it in the Slack? I call it maximalist pulp. Yes. This is cause, okay, imagine so, what Buster Keaton could have done with some CGI. That would oh, have been man. like he wouldn't he would have done it. He would have been like he, he would have been one of the like the last practical holdovers. <laughs> um. By the way, looking through the uh, Vatican film list, there is nothing surprising. It's literally everything. We could do the second bracket just off of this list because it's so fucking normy. So it's like uh, last attention to Christ. You heard it here uh, first. I think the Pope is a normie. <laughs> I think that might be the title of the episode. Um. So yes. Uh. Which one are we talking about first? We're talking. We're about- talking about Inception. Yes. Uh, okay. So I kind of. Uh, AKA Incept- like. AKA like every film bro's mind bending, mind blowing favorite film. Even though it is, we've talked about this quite a few times. It is almost thuddingly straightforward. Yeah. Um- the fact that anyone would call this a mind bending movie is. It's something else, Derek. It's a credit to Chris Nolan that. Well, as a director, that you know everything is laid out super cleanly. Yeah, it's not, it's not an insult that it's not especially complex or especially hard to follow. Those are like, if anything, credits to Nolan the fact that with everything this film does, that you never lose track of where anything's going. Inception is kind of the perfect usage case for Middle Brown Madness. I think it's the perfect movie. It's in the top fifteen. <laughs> It's directed by someone that you have called our greatest working middle-brow director, Christopher Nolan. I forgot I said that, but I, I would still agree with that right now. <laughs> um, it made a whole lot of bank. It has four-quadrant appeal. Like, there's a lot of, like, sort of, you know, like, dyed-in-the-wool film dorks who like this movie. And, like, for lack of a better term, normies like this movie as well. Um, because it's it's technically dazzling. It's a hell of a ride. It's got no characters other than Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yes. It's it's Christopher Nolan is he loves working in genre and like like there was uh, there was like discussion there was like a tweet today about like elevated horror, which makes me think oh, about God. like elevated genre. And makes me want to puke. Yeah, and like wh- what Chris Nolan does is that he takes these like pulp conceits and these pulp stories, like heist films, murder mysteries, um, uh, or even superhero films, or even superhero movies, and balloons them to gigantic size. The bigger the like, 
uh, a bigger canvas uh, to better dazzle you with with uh, his tricks of the trade. This um, may sound insulting. I don't mean it that way, but I realize it might sound that way. He's very good at making nothing like things that are not important seem important. He's also really good at making dumb. No, 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 no. He's very good at making like simple movies seem complicated. Yes, like very he makes so. he kind of makes you feel smart for like keeping keeping along. Like his yeah, like the, the prestige has one twist and it lays it out exactly, but it still feels really complicated and weird. It lays it out in the first five fucking minutes of that movie. Yes. If you are paying the slightest bit of attention, you know what's happening in that movie. And that's what Christopher Nolan is. More than anything else, more than a writer, more than a conjurer of images, he is a magician. He is a magician of cinema. He is our middle brown magician. And I, this is my second go around with Inception. I love this fucking movie. It's so fun. It's yeah. rollicking. It, it's the same way. If, like I will put on The Dark Knight or something, or The Prestige, or just like on the background. It's it's a perfect background movie because I get all the enjoyment of like the exciting um, what do you call them? The set pieces, the yeah. the weird concepts that are not maybe used entirely to the fullest extent, but are still used very well and are used like we said in very economical ways, even though he sometimes has some bloated run times, mm-hmm. none of his films really feel like they're, they're overlong or they're, they're not using every single part of what they have. That whole third act is just one sustained action set piece split on three different levels of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it's a feat and it's really, really fun. It's, it's it's like and it's a very it's a very talky heist movie. It's it explains every single one of its moves, and I'm completely in the tank for this kind of thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I will say that the the one problem I do have with this and some other of um I was gonna say Burton. That's not who I meant at all. <laughs> Nolan's films, um, and that I'm sure we'll get to at some point uh, talking about the other ones is that. I sometimes wish he would lean harder into the pulp. Sometimes he seems almost afraid of getting, he seems afraid of getting there. Like this film has a lot of characters who don't really have characters and that would be fine. They have ticks. And that would be fine if it was heist archetypes. If it was like, this is the weird guy. This is the guy who is really good at X, Y, and Z. Here's this other person. And they all kind of have that, but they don't lean into it as hard as they should. So it never ends up, feeling like a definition like you either need to actually flush someone out or you need to make them an archetype and i feel like sometimes he floats right in the middle like i I think ellen page is really trying in this movie but she does nothing to work with leo's pretty good in it though he is yeah i mean he's he's fine i i I, besides um obviously um in the the dark knight uh geez help me out christian bale yes no 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 Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger, right. The person that's in The Dark Knight. The reason you see the movie. The person that won an Oscar for his performance. Yes. Besides that performance, I don't think that there's really any great performances in any Nolan films. Um, I think uh, he even makes like great actors into bad actors. Like Interstellar. It's a movie I have quite a bit of soft spot in my heart for. It's also a movie with a lot of bad acting by really good actors. Like like you... And, and a lot of it's the writing, like the fact that Anne Hathaway in that movie has to deliver the worst speech imaginable. And sh- she's a great actress. She's incredible. And she's trying really hard. 
And it's just such a bad speech. It's so poorly written that it just doesn't come across. I don't know. I mean, I was really plugged in to, to that speech when it was happening. I'm, I'm in the tank for Interstellar as well. I bought into it hook, line, and sinker, I gotta say. I like I a lot of it. It's just that I can't it's front. A, I like uh, I like McConaughey in that. Mm, I, I mean, it's, I, I mean, he he. Wastes, that's the thing. Nolan's a big softy. That's the idea. He's a magician, but he's also a softy. And it's a un- weird it's a weird balance to mix. I feel like if I really wanted to get into this, we'd talk to way too much about Interstellar, which I have very serious political opinions about. Sure. So let's just stick to Inception, in which I agree it's a very sentimental film in a in a good way. Sure. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good, it's, it, it, well, like you said, it's an, it's a, it's a concept that lends itself to like lots of like great ideas, like great, um, it lends its, it could go in a lot of different directions. And this, this is funny that it goes in this direction. It's very potent. It's simple. Like this part of it is kind of elemental. It's like, this is kind of like a, a tragic love story and that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but it's, it's just a spectacular feat of filmmaking, I think. And I, I, as far as like, I'm still trying to think of another Nolan movie with like another like 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 a Cracker Jack performance <laughs> other than Heath Ledger. And I'm, I mean, I like a lot of these movies. Like I, I think mean, I I like David Bowie as Tesla, but he's not really acting; he's just being David Bowie. <laughs> Hilary Swank in Insomnia is really weird. Like that's a that's that's a performance of choices, which I can respect. But it's it's not Nolan has made the kind of movies that lend themselves really to bravado performances. I mean, that's yes. not really what his concern is, for better or worse. Um, speaking of movies with deep benches. God, yeah. Very attractive benches as well. Oh, man. There's, um, ah, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, there's a, plur- a plurality of sexy ladies in, in Eight and a Half, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, uh, so, so Eight so and a Half, Federico Fellini, are you a Fellini diehard? You, have you seen anything else by Fellini? Because I have not. I saw Fellini's Satyricon. When I was like 18 and I wasn't wild about it, I'm sure I'd like it better if I saw it again. Uh, that's the thing when you watch movies that are a little edgier when you're like 17, you don't take to them, which is weird because I watched like David Cronenberg's Crash when I was 18 and I thought it was phenomenal. So I guess it just depends on your flavor. Yeah, um, that's because I was very much into the, the strange and the edgy as I was that, as I was that age. Different that, was, edgy- that was my bread and butter. Like, like I considered swearing edgy still when I was eighteen. So I was, I was like, e- I was easily satiated. Um, but uh, I think, uh, what else have I seen by Fellini? It can't be just those two. I can't have a fucking a fucking piece of paper that says I have a that I'm a master of film and only see you two Fellini films. You didn't see Vertigo before you got that piece of paper. So that piece of paper doesn't mean much in terms of which film you've actually seen. Where are you? I mean, like uh, La Strada, Knights of Cabria, which is also no. on this list, so I'll see that at some point. Yeah, Knights, Knights of Caribia and La Strada are both on my computer right the fuck now, and I have not seen either of them. So, no, I've only seen the two Fellini films because I'm a bad cinephile. But also, like I was saying about All About Eve, uh, the films of Federico Fellini are kind of cultural objects at this point in time you kind of take for granted. Because... No one, like, if someone were to make an eight-and-a-half-esque film now, kind of this navel-gazy piece about kind of a scumbag director navel-gazing, I mean, it would get eviscerated. (laughs) Yeah, you just say, well, someone already made this film, and you're not Fellini, so what are you doing? And yet, this movie still kind of has, like, a a power to it. It does, which I was, 
surprised by, I guess. I don't know why I was surprised. It just, I, besides the couple like neorealist films I'm a fan of, uh, generally speaking, I don't like European cinema of this era. I don't really like Italian Italian neorealism. I was going to say neoliberalism. Don't like that either, but that's. Nah, it's not great. Um, I don't like the French New Wave at all, besides As you've uh, said Varda. Previously. Yeah. Um, it's just not really my kind of filmmaking. But there's a lot of really good images in here. And there's a lot of things that, even though I've seen derivatives, I still found really resonant and fun. Like, for example, I mentioned in the chat that there's a scene in this movie that's basically a scene from End of Evangelion. Yes. This is the sequence where uh, he arrives. He's basically got a harem dressed in white pampering him then they all stop to tell him everything he does wrong and how bad of a person he is which is the best part of the movie in my opinion because we know you're a piece of shit (laughs) yeah which is my main barrier with the film is that i didn't like being with the guy too much i found him very off-putting which is the point but at the same time like i have to spend all this time with him when i just want to spend the time with like the more interesting characters which is basically all the women basically all the women yeah because and i should say i feel like i would also resonate with this film more if i'd seen other Fellini because clearly there's moments where it's like you're referencing something that you did I don't know what it is but I can tell it's a reference because he's because that's the thing eight and a half is literally I have made eight movies and I collaborated on some, with someone else on another seven movies and, he's made seven and a half movies right so this. this is so this is this is like where I'm at right now yes and it's like it's it's very artful self-flagellation it's a collection of great images interwoven with this kind of "oh, woe is me." Directing's hard. Uh, it's 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 fucking tough being a genius. God damn it, you don't understand. Yeah, and those are the moments where it falls down to me. The moments where it does really well is the moments where that flagellation does end up being a little more self like critical and actually looks at the things he's doing. And I think that his relationship with his wife actually works incredibly well. Yeah, that scene when they're looking at the dailies is fucking eviscerating. Yeah. Um, when they're looking at the dailies and they're seeing his choice of depictions of her on screen and she's like seeing herself through his eyes and seeing what he thinks of her. It's it's really like uncomfortable and heart wrenching and it's kind of it it works emotionally in a way that not the rest of the movie necessarily does. I feel like that scene in the last scene where he um, the scene, I think, after he shoots himself in the head and he talks to his wife and was like, hey, here's what, here's what I can give. Here's what like you can give. And they kind of like come to a compromise. Yeah, because it, it basically comes to – it's like um, what the fuck is even the point of any of this if like I'm not enjoying myself and I can't open up to the – and I can't like open myself up to the ones I love yeah. without the – as like a human to another human and not through necessarily my art. And those this two is, moments it, I found incredibly resonant. And – it's 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 a rich metatextual tapestry. I've seen two Fellini films and I know this already. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and it took me this. It took me like deep into my second viewing of this to realize that the big central image of this is a giant hollow phallus. Yes, yes. Just a just a giant empty rocket, just there, incomplete, impotent, and it's like this 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 fucking movie. It's a though, metaphor. This, it's a metaphor. It's it's not particularly subtle or about as subtle as like a giant metal rocket can be, I guess. So you were saying about sexy ladies earlier. Yes, there's – it feels a little – I feel like we're falling into the trap of eight and a half by saying that. Yeah. But the, the supporting bench that's 
almost all women, like there's the critic in this film, I think is also very good. But yeah. it's like uh, Claudia Cardinale. Is that how you say that? Uh, is it Cardinale or Cardinale? I think it's Cardinale because um, she's Italian. Here's what I know how to say. Barbara Steele. She's great. Barbara Steele, I loved her in it. The legend. Um, Anouk Ami. Is that how you? I Anouk should just let you do these. Anouk Ami. Cool. I'm pretty sure that's and what it, I said. Uh, you didn't. <laughs> okay. I believe you. You said It sounded more like Anouk Ami. I don't think it did, but- we have we have a recording of it, so luckily I can delete this part if I was wrong. <laughs> um, that's the thing; it's it's this really delicate dance of self-flagellation and self-indulgence. And credit to Fellini that he can at, like at the same time he's saying like, "Oh, I'm an awful like womanizer." He's also saying, "Look at all these beautiful women who are Look in my film, these- and all these women who want to fuck me." This awesome director. <laughs> Here's the thing: there's not a second in this movie that Marcello Mastroianni looks happy. Yes. Even like even when he's like with like there's not a second that he looks thrilled to be there. Even and when he's like in his harem, it's just him like criticizing. He's the just like, ah, oh, got fuck. Okay, sure. It's like, oh, I fucking hate this. This fucking asshole producer. Like all these critics don't fucking understand. Ah, blah, blah. Like like classic. Not seeing the forest for the trees. Like here's the thing with eight and a half. Explaining eight and a half ruins the point of eight and a half because you fall into its traps. It it covers every possible base. About itself and about Fellini, so talking about it is kind of like a weird. It's it's like this like this weird uh, this weird like ouroboric exercise. I mean, it's it's a lot like um, Lady in the Water, in that there there's a uh, there's a, a critic character in Lady in the Water who, if you start criticizing Lady in the Water, you kind of start sounding like the critic in Lady in the Water. Sure. So, which is not to say Lady in the Water is a good movie. I think it's. I'm not- I'm not seeing Lady. I think it's Shyamalan's worst. Well, not his worst, but one of his worst, like actual auteur films. But um, should we talk about Lady in the Water for a bit? No, no, that'd be kind of Lady in the Water is unfortunately not on the 250. Does Shyamalan have one in Sixth Sense in here somewhere? Um, I think so. Uh, Yes, it is. Was it facing in the first round? Um, Inglorious Bastards. Oh, that's a matchup. Interesting. Um, so uh, how how, I think we've probably gone over time. Uh, no, we actually uh, still have a couple minutes. Couple minutes, okay. Uh, eight and a half. Um, yeah, I think I think my first letterbox review of this when I saw this for the first time was anyone who says that a movie is just a movie is either a fool or a coward, and uh, our boy Guido is both a fool and a coward. Yes, uh, he comes to his senses a bit at the end, metaphorically kills his former self with a with a pistol shot to the head underneath a table uh, that is being crowded by his his loudest and harshest critics. And no, this movie is absolutely. 100% super unsubtle about like boohoo woe is me people are talking about me in the press mm-hmm. and uh, life is hard for her. like this movie should be putrid I feel like we're not saying that it's funny though it, it, it is funny it is a very it funny, is funny movie it's it's really light on its feet it's uh, and, and it, it looks never, amazing it's a very Great score it does this weird balancing act of yes that woe is me kind of attitude but also it never is dour no it's like, like you could even in that scene that I talked about that is really emotionally affecting. Like watching the the dailies, like watching those screen tests. It's at the same time both really affecting and really like heartbreaking. But at the same time, there's it's filled with jokes and it's filled yes. with these weird asides and filled with these weird cutaways. And, and like there's the the producer in the front row who's constantly looking back to the director, looking for him to just say something, just say anything so we can keep this movie fucking going. And he doesn't. It's almost like a like an old comedy bit 
Like again, what else? Like we're kind of falling into the all about Eve uh, Tokyo story trap of what the fuck did we add to the discourse about this movie that's like been like canonized like time and time again? So does that mean we should decide whether this or Inception are moving forward? I have no fucking idea which one of these should go for. Okay, I mean, I'll 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 start then. I think Inception should. Um, oh man, I'm not sure that it's better. I think that eight and a half is a. Uh, it's the kind of film that if I said was worse than Inception, I'd almost feel bad about because it's like, oh, it's eight and a half. It's, it's, it's a film, and like eight and, a half, and like Inception's like a movie. But at the same time, if we're looking at what they're attempting to do and what I got out of their attempts, I think like eight and a half is attempting to make this self-critical portrait, attempting to make a funny and kind of sad movie about one man's neuroses. Sure, and I think it's it's successful. But it also a little trying and also a little difficult. Uh, not not Which in, is, not in like a a arty way, but in a difficult and like a you repeating yourself. Stop! Like just do something new, please. Whereas Inception, its whole goal is to be a crowd pleasing, like dream heist movie about like this tragic love, and I feel like it hits every like on all cylinders in that whole time. Yeah, it's ah oh, man. Because you you hit on something very very true, I would feel I feel like kind of a prick moving on Inception over eight and a half, because I like it feels wrong, but I I mean I think that's almost like a, a certain like there's a snob in the back of our heads that's saying what are you saying that what are you even talking about yeah, like this is such an obvious answer they it's saying but at the same time I'm someone who has like most of my like top ten films are genre films I've. I'm trying to like accept that part of me that I just happen to like certain kinds of films and there's there's a lot of value in these films that aren't technically critically maybe as rich or as um arty quote unquote sure I think that eight and a half gives off a certain impression that we don't want to damage or we don't we feel like we'll look uncultured by saying <laughs> that inception is better does that make uh, sense it do, it does make a little sense I think that both these movies. Like, more, like, I think, ah, man, I think you're right. I think while both these movies, like, succeed at what they do, like, any, like, any criticism I might levy towards Eight and a Half is instantly kind of parried by Eight and a Half. And while that is, like, really interesting and very rich from a criticism standpoint, like, like if I was going to write an like, essay about one of these, I'd choose eight and a half because there's a lot a more there. But like, ah, oh, man. But if I'm going to watch one of them, I'm going to watch Inception. Not to sound yeah, like, a, like a vulgar American or whatever, but. Well, it's like, while eight and a half is like, like the, this perfect European art film text. Ah, oh, man. Inception is like this perfect beast of pop filmmaking. Oh, I think I might have to go Inception as well. Okay, so now anyone who. Things that we were that we were serious about film, that we were film cinephiles, can now officially turn the podcast off and know that we don't know anything. We're a couple of rubes. All just, about who just Eve like when things go made bang. It into the second round in this episode because we didn't like the first one at all. Neither of us really loved All About Eve. I mean, I I, I liked it. pretty It's a good, good. movie, I mean, but like I mean, like all the Chaplin and Keaton and that made it through, and the fucking and Hitchcock's coming up probably is Hitchcock in this bracket. Has to be. Vertigo's definitely in here. Along with Psycho. Oh, right, Vertigo's in here. There's no way those Psycho's probably in here. So, no, I think, like, 
I and, think it does. And what's the 400 blows going up against? Alien. Oh, fuck that. Mm. Sorry, 400 blows. Maybe. Hey, maybe I'll like the 400 blows. I won't, but maybe I will. <sighs> I I adore the five the the 400 blows. Great movie. But Alien's probably one of like my 20 <laughs> favorite movies. But hey, maybe that, maybe we'll revise it on, on listening. So and watching. And also, I think that for a show called Middle Brow Madness, Inception going in ahead of Eight and a Half is in flavor. That is true. I feel like like we're I really f- keeping. Um, we need at least some Middle Brow films to make it forward, so we can keep the premise of this podcast going. Yeah, it can't just be. It just can't be like like. Uh, it can't be like like. It can't just be snob movies, right? Yes. We can't just like defer to that particular. Uh, we can't defer to that area of our judgment. So that's the episode. That's uh, both matchups. Uh, so what we have coming up uh, next time, I'm glad you asked. Uh, we have Full Metal Jacket against Fargo. Damn. That Damn. fuck. Damn. And City Lights versus Monsters, Inc. My, so we get to talk about my Pixar. My nemesis, Pixar. We get to talk about Pixar. And that's great because Isabel don't like Pixar. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. I have some thoughts on Pixar. Let's say that. All right. Are they mostly positive or negative? You'll have to tune in to find out. Well, goddamn. Uh, all right. So, uh, uh, but but if you've listened to this podcast, I have a feeling you know which one it is. All right. So, back end matter. Um, wait a minute. No, no, no. I can't say that. Speaking of back end like, matter, yeah, it sounds like poop. Oh, I was gonna say you can put some in your butt. That's your back end matter. Oh, hashtag uh, bad dragon. So you can contact us on Which, Twitter. This is not ironic. <laughs> like legitimately, Bad Dragon, if you're listening, and I know you are, because I believe in my heart. I, I've I, I've envisioned it on my secret board that <laughs> we are going to be sponsored by you. So this is not an ironic, like call for to no. call to action. Genuinely. <laughs> okay. Yes. This this is not a bit. Bad Dragon, if you are listening, if someone. At uh, Bad Dragon Social is listening. We will 100% take any money you give us to plug your shit. And I use that word specifically because I know what you sell. <laughs> you can contact us God on Twitter. Damn it. <laughs> at Middlebrow Pod. I thought Isabel. you were the classy one here. I mean, I uh, you, you know you take uh, oh Jesus, uh, you take you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Uh, How did you fuck button. that up when you're like Canadian? Here's you know why I fucked it up because I was gonna call my I was gonna attribute the quote to Wayne Gretzkyt as a joke. <laughs> so while Isabel's having a conniption fit, I'm gonna continue plugging our social. You can contact the pod at Middlebrow Pod on Twitter. You can contact Isabel at Space Jam Fan. You can contact me Derek Godday at Derek underscore G, and you can drop us a line at no not at this is an email address I'm giving. Madness at gmail.com. So, um, that does it. And I think uh, Isabel is still in the middle of a laughing fit. So, for I'm good. Isabel I'm, Arf. I'm here. Okay, so you can sign off for yourself. I- I'm, I've been Isabel Arf. I've been Derek Gade. Have movies be jolly. Wayne Gretzky. Good night, everybody. Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky.